0: Welcome to another episode of WDMA Open and Closed. I'm Eric DeVos with the Window and Door Manufacturers Association. Coming up on the podcast, WDMA CEO Mike O'Brien will be talking with housing industry analyst John Burns of John Burns Real Estate Consulting about the state of the market, what he is seeing in his industry surveys, and his new Window and Door Hotness Index. A little later, WDMA's Kevin McKenney and Steve Orlowski discuss the new proposed Canadian formaldehyde regulations and why they could be problematic for U.S. manufacturers if adopted as proposed. As a reminder, you can subscribe to WDMA Open and Closed through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also listen to us online through the WDMA website at wdma.com forward slash WDMA Open and closed.
1: Joining us today on the podcast is John Burns. John founded John Burns Real Estate Consulting to help business executives make informed housing industry investment decisions. The company's subscribers receive detailed analyses to inform their macro investment decisions, and the company's consulting clients receive specific property and portfolio investment advice designed to maximize profits. John is the co-author of the best-selling book Big Shifts Ahead: Demographic Clarity for Businesses, and he has more than 600,000 people who follow his LinkedIn influencer column and 30,000 folks subscribe to his emails. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. I'm happy to be here. So to kick kick things off, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a little bit more about your background and company?
2: Okay. Well, John Burns, uh, John Burns Real Estate Consulting, really tough to come up with that name. Uh, Very creative. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) So, I founded the company 18 years ago. Really, uh, because no residential construction companies were really had a big enough staff to collect all the data and monitor what was going on in the market. Actually, when I started the company, there wasn't a lot of data. Now there's too much data. Mm -hmm. So, um, we're essentially the outsourced uh, research department for a lot of companies, and our goal is just to communicate accurately what's going on and tell people uh, what's coming in their business. And for the window and door guys, I think it's pretty easy because we're very tight with uh, what's going on on the front lines with the uh, new home builders in particular, and their sales are the leading indicator for how many window and doors we're going to see built.
1: So it seems the growth in construction has been slowing now for a while. Uh, Can you tell us what you think is going on
2: Yes, I can tell you exactly what's going on. So, All right. We like exact. <laughs> so uh, just a little bit of history here because it set us up for, for this year. In, in 2018, we started the year with 3.9% mortgage rates. By September, we hit 49 and the, but they're ticking down though, aren't they? They're ticking down. But I'm talking about last year because it teed up the starts for this year. Mm-hmm. So, um, so. And it ramped up right into the fourth quarter, which was the slow season of the year. And the stock market took a dump in the fourth quarter, too. And home sales were horrible in the fourth quarter. So the inventory built up and the builders all of a sudden got stuck with more homes under construction than they planned on having. So starts just slowed. And we survey close to 20% of the builders every single month. And uh, this last month, August, this was the first time in 11 months they actually told us we started more homes than the year before. So it was just a big buildup in inventory related to slow sales. And sales sales is the leading indicator for permits, which is then the leading indicator for starts.
1: Well, at 1.3 million total starts, aren't we still underbuilding the market?
2: Uh, we think we're building exactly as many as we need. And we've had a very contrarian view to that. But, but you mentioned the book that we wrote. So we, we did a 9,000 hour demographics research project, really to figure out housing demand was the, was the goal and to understand the demographics behind it. We think we need on average about 1.4 million units per year. But that includes manufactured homes. And so there's about 100,000 manufactured homes. So when you take the 1.3 million starts plus 100,000 manufactured, you get to 1.4. And if you don't think that's right, look at home price appreciation. It's running at about the rate of income growth right now. So the demand and supply is in balance. That being said, I think the number can get bigger by the industry delivering better homes and better locations at the right price point and stealing share from the resale market so from a shelter standpoint i think we're fine but i think we can grow
1: so what's your theory on uh, there's a lot of them about the delayed millennial home buyer.
2: yeah so we, we we beat this to death so the the delayed millennial home buyer is there the the we broke the millennials down into those born in the 80s versus the 90s in fact we did all the demographics by 10-year period so you can compare apples to apples mm-hmm um those born in the 80s were about 11 percent uh tailwind to those born in the 70s so we've, we've we've actually seen those born in the 80s who are now aged in their 30s move into home ownership they've formed all their households that story about living with mom and dad that is done the younger millennials born in the 90s they're still tending to live with mom and dad um getting their act together forming some household they're more in the apartment market um But you also got to remember that this generation associates recessions with huge declines in home prices and foreclosures. And they saw their parents go through it or their friends' parents go through it. So the the math is there for them to buy homes, but there is a fear there that maybe I shouldn't take on a 30 year mortgage if I'm living paycheck to paycheck. And our consumer research has proved that out.
1: Well, there seem to be a lot of other factors that, People keep talking about in terms of size of student loan debt, um, other external factors that are keeping them from being able to afford, particularly in a lot of the major metro markets.
2: Yeah, so all of that is true. So we, we did a white paper on the student debt and figured out that about, there's about 8% fewer transactions per year because of student debt. Um, that's a lot. That is a lot. Uh, but but that's, that's the math. Uh, on the flip side of that, though, you also have to remember that they're the most college-educated generation ever. So while they're running around with a lot of student debt, actually some of the the bifurcation in in society about income growth has been more high-income growth due to more dual-income college-educated households. They're getting there. And particularly, a lot of them, frankly, lived with mom and dad early on because of the Great Recession. But after that, it was like, that's how I save for a down payment. So we're, th- their home ownership rates are very low for their age. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and I don't think they're going to get to the same home ownership rate as their parents, but they're aspiring to home ownership.
1: But you don't think the allure of home ownership is wearing off for millennials? I, Do you think I, there's always going to be a higher percentage of renters in the, in this particular generation?
2: Uh, yes. And uh, but I'll phrase it another way. So, The uh, baby boomers, particularly the early ones, achieved an 80% home ownership rate by the time they got into their 50s. I don't think this generation is going to get there. Some of it by choice. Um, Some of it is, frankly, their parents had uh, a full 1% higher average GDP growth during their entire working lives than than they've had. So there's an affordability issue, there's an economy issue, um, there's a uh, it's less of a badge of honor to be a homeowner compared to what their parents went through. And in fact, renting is even considered smart. Hey, I'm flexible. I can pick up and move. If I get laid off, I can, I do have a solution not going through foreclosure. There's still more than 50% of them are going to become homeowners, but I don't think they're going to get to 80. All
1: right. So what else are your surveys telling you about the housing market these days?
2: Um, well, the, Sales are picking up. So, in fact, in August we saw sales increase 16% year over year compared to the prior August. Now the comps are starting to get easy because the back half of 2018 was pretty miserable, Uh, but that's causing my builder clients to be a lot more optimistic. Um, So we're we're seeing them buy more land, and I'm I'm confident uh, the window and door companies are going to see more demand from the home builders over the next uh, few years. What we're seeing in the repair and remodel side of the business, and Todd Tomilak leads a lot of our research there, is a uh, because of concerns about um, the economy and uh, income growth growing a little bit slower than it was earlier, we're seeing people pivot down to lower-priced products. And we're, we're seeing the the contractors do that, too, is because prices have gone up and I've only got X dollars for my remodel, so I'm going to get a less expensive window or a less expensive door. So the volume is there. In fact, I, I think I got the numbers here. We were forecasting 16.8 million single family windows next year and 3.1 million multifamily windows in, in new construction. Um, but it'll probably be the less expensive windows compared to last year.
1: Well, well, so you talked about sort of down downsizing some of the, the products, but how are builders changing their designs and what does that mean for the window and door industry other than cheaper products? Yeah.
2: So actually I'm glad you asked that because that's the real opportunity. Mm. So the volume is weak because the consumer is less likely to go out to an exurb because it's, you know, it used used to be one of you stay at home and the other commute. Now we're both working. Uh, What we're seeing is a lot more urban infill or even suburban infill more homes per acre. So you're going to see fewer windows and doors per house, but you actually might see, you will see more windows and doors per acre because there's more homes on the acre. And that's creating a a real opportunity because when you jam homes next to each other, it's hard to get the light in the house. You need a lot of windows, but you also can't have a window facing your neighbor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's a lot more privacy oriented um, glazing is what we're, we're seeing. So not only like designs that would create privacy, but even the windows up high to let the light in, but, um, but keep, but keep the privacy going.
1: Well, it, it, the benefits of daylighting are obviously something that we as an organization promote very heavily. Um, but I understand where you're coming from that you don't want to have windows facing windows. Well, it's, uh, You have to be more creative and, and that's going to mean also probably gr- perhaps greater use of skylights?
2: Well, greater use of skylights, but um, we're not seeing as much skylights as, we're seeing 12 to 15 detached homes per acre. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a lot of homes on the acre. And you have to be pretty clever to get light into the house when there's only ten feet between you and the home mm-hmm. next door. And so that's, th- th- there's a lot going on with the architects to design a home to bring light into the house. It's it's extremely important, and particularly when you live in an environment like that, and you you just want to you don't want to feel so jammed in. Li- light is critical.
1: Yeah, I, even in my own house that I bought a few years ago, though. I'm close to a neighbor on one side and the builder placed smaller windows, but higher.
2: Exactly, that's a completely than, different window.
1: Right. <laughs> um, but then again, I don't have somebody on the other side so they could maximize light from the from the other side of the house. Yeah,
2: but imagine if you had somebody on, on three I sides, which, yeah, is, which is
1: pretty typical.
2: The, the other trend we're seeing, and this is coming more from uh, local governments than it is from the consumer, it's just energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. And and so more, more energy efficient windows. But I think, I think everybody knows that, but California is probably going to lead the way to getting us to some sort of net zero New York energy, new construction here. So they'll they'll be mandating those type of windows.
1: Yeah. So tell me about the window and door hotness index.
2: Yeah. So this could come
1: up with that name.
2: Uh, no, I'm not smart enough to come up with that as
1: <laughs> my staff did. We have a number of hotness indices, if you will. Okay. So it's, it's not anything new.
2: No, it's not anything new, but this is, um, for the building products, Todd tore apart 15 different categories of building products and built out a complete 15 year model of how, um, what the drivers are for each product in the house. And, um, on a scale of zero to 10 with five being the norm, windows are at a 5.7. So they're, they're better than normal uh, orders right now. Uh, but probably more importantly, he figured out what the eight key drivers of demand are. Uh, number one being household formation, which is clearly trending up. Uh, number two, and this might surprise some people, is it's really income growth and excess of inflation, um, which has been trending up. It's trending down a little bit um, right now. Uh, not trending down, but trending up less. Uh, the shift to home ownership, which as you talked about, that's trending down. So that's holding the industry back. And, and mobility would be the number four factor. The, there's four more after that. I don't remember where they are, but mobility is declining. It uh, has been in a decline for quite I something.
1: mean, what do you mean by mobility? Just
2: moving, the, frequ- the frequency of moving. Now, part of that is demographic because we're getting older. So people in their 60s move less than people in their 20s. Uh, but, people are buying a home or renting an apartment and staying in it longer than their parents stayed Mm -hmm. and they're just you know it's expensive to move i think some of the economy now that allows you to be a smart worker and work from wherever is is allowing people to in fact i've got employees i'm hiring from i got one in green bay wisconsin and portsmouth new hampshire i'm like work wherever you want i'm on the road all the time i think that's allowing people to stay in place a little bit longer than hey, honey, we have to pack up and move because my promotion opportunity is across the other side of the country.
1: Well, the rule of thumb was always a person or a household stayed seven to 10 years. Yeah. Do you think that rule of thumb is it's no longer any good? or
2: So for homeowners, it's 19. So that's the seven number included renters, which move more, more mm-hmm. frequently. Um, yeah, we've got it charted in one of our monthly uh, research reports.
1: Um, yeah. So we, th- so for homeowners, it's 19 years.
2: Uh, yes. Wow. I know. It's, that's not what real estate agents want to hear, but that is what's going on.
1: Well, I suppose when you factor in the older generation versus, right. I mean, that's, that's exactly yeah, right. I mean, a lot of it I'll, I'll, probably depends on part of the country you're in as well. I mean, housing costs and things like that. and And the whole move up to the from starter home to well
2: the the aspiration to move up is not what it used to be
1: Mm
2: -hmm. you know what what i what i aspire to do is spend less time on the road so i can experience life and um not to have a great big home on a two acre spread and i i know a lot of baby boomers with big homes and two acre spreads aren't too happy about it because those homes have been falling in price
1: yeah so what, what are your theories about the rest of this year and looking forward to 2020? So are we talking ourselves into a recession? So
2: 87% of CFOs think we're going to have a recession the next two years. So maybe we are, but even, even the ones that I poll, I say, well, are you, are you putting that into your budgets for your company? Oh, no, not mm-hmm. <laughs> So I, I think we're kind of talking like the, the risks are very high and all the research we do is there are a lot of risks out there. So I, I don't think we're talking ourselves into recession, but I think we're, we're helping talk ourselves into slow growth. Everybody's behaving, or most people are behaving pretty cautiously. And I think there's some good reasons for that. But as you alluded to, mortgage rates have come plunging back down. They're back down as, as we're sitting here in the middle of September at 3.6%. Um, that has gotten a lot of entry-level buyers into the market. What has surprised me is it has not created as much move up activity as I would have thought because a year ago, 60% of homeowners had a lower interest rate mortgage Mm -hmm. than the market rate. So to move would be a really expensive decision. Now it's only 13% of homeowners have a mortgage rate below the market rate. And we're seeing a pickup and move up, but not as much as you would think. I mean, someone who bought a home five years ago now has got $50,000 in equity and maybe they barely squeezed into a home they could barely fit in you think they'd take some of that equity and go get a bigger, nicer home. And, and really very few people are doing that.
1: Is that translating into more additions or versus? Well, it's one of the
2: reasons why we're really bullish on remodeling because if people aren't going to move and they're going to stay put, I mean, eventually you get sick of your kitchen. So you replace your kitchen. And um, yes.
1: Um, I think in general, what we're hearing in the industry is, like you said, it's a slowdown, softening. Those are the types of words that I hear for 2020. I, I think there yeah. is a greater fear that just from a a, a a policy standpoint that we're talking ourselves into a recession that doesn't well, need to really happen in 2020. And so now, now with, you know, potentially housing finance reform on the table and upheaval with Fannie and Freddie and that will make lenders nervous. And I mean, it, it's hard to calculate these days what the external factors will do to the market.
2: Right. So, so we, we actually built an economic performance index and a leading index to it. It's not mm. a hotness index. <laughs> <laughs> um, the odds of a recession in the next two years is usually 27%. According to the leading indicators, it's running 75 so talking ourselves or not, there's enough out there to indicate that the odds are about 75% of a recession sometime in the next two years. If that happens, that will not be good for housing, but actually we, we did a white paper on all the um, sectors of the economy on Wall Street. Housing is the best capitalized, best positioned industry out there, regardless of what goes on. I think that the publicly traded home builders have paid down their debt to be 28% of their market value we could have a Lehman Brothers collapse all over again right now. And every single one of them would be fine. And they wouldn't like it, but they'd be fine. Mm -hmm. So recession or not, I think this industry is the best positioned industry out there to grow. And actually in our business, we're seeing a lot of capital flow into the industry right now for that reason, both with uh, rolling up building products companies, um, but also there's this new concept about purposely building homes that intended to be for rent, which is a I, I don't know if the windows in that will be different. There are other materials in that that tend to be extremely different, and that's a a hot opportunity um, that's going to grow construction.
1: In different in what way? Materials. Uh,
2: well, it's a landlord, so right. the la- the the pain of uh, owning um, a rental home is turnover when somebody leaves and having to fix everything. So they're put they're actually not putting the lowest cost materials in; they're putting the most durable materials. Well, in. As a,
1: that's what I was thinking. I, it, never makes any sense to me why a landlord would go on the cheap given the wear and tear. Right. that. A,
2: but they're, they're doing uh, things like, for example, they won't put a fireplace in because they yeah. can't charge any more rent for the, for the fireplace. Um, so, so the, the products are different. Um, we, you know, they pay the energy bills. So will they do a more energy efficient window and door? Actually, I take that back. Maybe the, maybe the tenants pay the utility bills. So maybe, it, maybe that's mm, not the bad. case. Uh, I got to do some more homework on that one.
1: Um, any other words of wisdom you want to give the window and door manufacturers?
2: Uh, words of wisdom for the window and door manufacturers. I, I think pay attention to new home sales because uh, that's the the leading indicator. Um, the other thing is just a, a small plug for us. I mean, we we do a lot of research for the industry. We we have subscription reports. We can we can be the outsourced research department for less than the cost of a person. Um, which I obviously think is a good, good idea. And um, that's pretty much all I've got.
1: So tell folks, how do they find you?
2: Uh, so our website is realestateconsulting.com and uh, just jburns at realestateconsulting.com is my email, or you can look us up on LinkedIn as well.
1: Great. Well, John, thanks so much for participating in the podcast. Uh, we look forward to seeing what, what's, what comes next and uh, hopefully 2020 will turn out to be a positive year.
2: Yeah. Well, if rates stay where they are, I I think it's going to be a little bit more positive than people think.
1: Great. Thanks a lot. All right. And we'll be right back.
0: Builders, architects, and remodelers now have a new trusted resource when designing, specifying, and selecting high-performance windows, doors, and skylights. WDMA recently launched a new initiative called Open Up to Performance to offer a wide variety of educational and informative content, including a new website, openuptoperformance.com, which contains blog posts, videos, podcasts, and webinars created and curated by industry experts. It is also supported by a robust social media campaign. The website is intended to help residential builders and remodelers, as well as residential and commercial architects and specifiers, make informed decisions about their customers' windows, doors, and skylights. Additionally, professionals will be able to learn about the WDMA Hallmark Certification Program, an accredited program that rigorously inspects and tests products to ensure that they are code-compliant, high-performing, and high-quality. Architects and specifiers will also be able to access information on selecting and specifying architectural doors that meet ANSI and WDMA architectural door standards. To learn more about the initiative, visit openuptoperformance.com.
3: Hello, I'm Kevin McKenney, WDMA's Director of Government Affairs, and today I'm talking with WDMA's Senior Director of Standards and Technical Activity, Steve Orlowski, in regards to some recent proposed regulations in Canada aimed at curbing formaldehyde emissions levels in composite wood products. For many of you who follow WDMA regulatory activities, you know that WDMA was actively engaged in the U.S. EPA regulations on formaldehyde emissions, also known as TSCA Title VI. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about the recent action taken by the Canadian government's proposed regulations and the potential impacts that it would have had for both U.S. and Canadian manufacturers. So, Steve, just to start us off, if you would please explain the genesis of the Canadian regulations on formaldehyde emissions levels.
4: Uh, absolutely. Um, so, over the years, the Canadian government has created and modified regulations aimed at reducing formaldehyde exposure to consumers. Uh, Beginning with the prohibition of urea formaldehyde based insulation in 1980s, Canada has been actively pursuing regulations to protect the health of Canadians and to also monitor the activity of international regulations related to the products manufactured using formaldehyde. At the current time, uh, Canada has only got a voluntary standard for formaldehyde emission levels for composite wood components used in residential and commercial construction. Uh, these standards are developed by the Canadian Standards Association and are based on the provisions outlined in the California Air Resources Board, or also known as the CARB regulations. Uh, those CARB regulations were the basis for the United States EPA developing the regulations under the to- Toxic Substance Control Act, also known as TSCA Title VI, ruled uh, entitled the Formaldehyde Emission Standards for Composite Wood Products. So the Canadian government decided that the new regulations passed in the United States had the potential to pose some problems for both Canadian consumers and the manufacturers. Uh, concerns over products that could not meet the U.S. regulations entering the Canadian markets from foreign manufacturers could increase the exposure risk to the Canadians putting their health in uh, at risk. From the manufacturing side, there was concerns that the Canadian manufacturers would be at a disadvantage if the regulations between the U.S. and the Canada were not aligned.
3: And from what you've read, how did the proposed regulations differ from the TOSCA Title VI requirements?
4: From an emissions-level perspective, the regulations are completely aligned regarding the parts-per-million values for hardwood, plywood, particle board, medium-density fiberboard, and laminated products. However, there were some discrepancies that we determined could po- could pose a potential problem for both Canadian and U.S. architectural door manufacturers in relation to the administrative requirements under the proposed regulations. The three main concerns that we had revolved around the language regarding the labeling of products, the duration and location of record keeping, and disclosing of confidential business information to the Canadian government through an annual report. Um, During the development of the US regulations, our members were very concerned regarding the use of labels and the information that needed to be relayed to the purchaser. Based on our reading of the Canadian regulations, the labels required by the proposed regulations would be affixed to the composite wood panels, as well as the components and finished goods manufactured from these panels. And these labels would not convey any message to the consumer that the products bearing the label are in compliance with the regulation. In addition, the regulations also state that the label may be in the form of a stamp, tag, or sticker that is securely affixed to the product in a visible location, in a manner that is not con- that cannot be easily removed and must be sufficiently durable to remain legible throughout the useful life of the product under normal conditions, transportation, storage, sales, and use. Now, anyone familiar with the conditions that an architectural wood door goes through over the life of the product knows that creating a permanent label that will not be damaged, removed, or easily vandalized is nearly impossible. From a labeling perspective, the impacts can be significant, especially requiring two separate labels one being recognized by the U.S. regulators and one recognized by the Canadians. Uh, In our comments that we submitted to uh, the proposed regulations, we were requesting that either the labeling requirements should be completely aligned using similar acceptable language as proposed in the Title VI rules, or we suggested that that language should be uh, uh, added to the proposed regulations addressing the reciprocity between Canada and United States by recognizing labels from either country. Another discrepancy that noted in our comments was a provision indicating that the manufacturers would be required to retain records for a duration of five years and in a location within Canada. Now reading this to require manufacturers from outside Canada to create a new operating facility location within Canada for the sole purpose of maintaining records, really appeared to be an excessive requirement, especially in this day and age where documents are stored electronically and can be transmitted from anywhere in the world, even when requested by the Canadian government. In regards to maintaining the records for five years, we were really not sure what the purpose of that proposed regulation for manufacturers to retain the records on complying products two years longer than what is required by the EPA, where that basis came from. Based on the frequency of the emissions testing that manufacturers are subjected to for their products, and the limited amount of time that the regulations give the manufacturer to notify the, uh, the downstream supply chain that there's a non-conforming lot or a bad batch, uh, we really didn't understand what the five-year retention would actually be beneficial to the Canadian regulators. We figured that you know, under the EPA TOSCA rules you know, three years is plenty of time for recording and maintaining those records, if anything should come up at a later date. The last concern that we had was mostly pertaining to the requirement that the reports be submitted annually for laminated products to the ministers of health and the environment. According to the proposed regulations, the definition of a laminated product means a product which is a wood or woody grass veneer glued to a composite wood panel or to a veneer core platform. Now based on how architectural wood doors are constructed, it's unclear by this definition whether an architectural wood door would be considered a laminated product or would be required to comply would be a laminated product and be required to comply with the annual reporting, or if this is not considered a laminated product and a finished good. Based on the information being requested in the proposed regulation, if architectural wood doors were considered a laminated product, this would expose our manufacturers to providing sensitive and sometimes proprietary business information, such as identifying amounts and types of resin, number of products, shipments within the country, and other material that could expose you know, confidential business information that manufacturers do not want their competitors to have. In our comments, we've made two requests. The first being that if it's not the intent to consider architectural wood doors a laminated product, then there should be a better definition of what a laminated product is and examples of what is not considered laminated products. The second suggestion that we made was to strike the requirements for disclosing any information that is proprietary in nature to protect them manufacturers.
3: So what potential impacts would these discrepancies have on manufacturers?
4: So the, the biggest issues that we see, the biggest impacts, we believe with these discrepancies if they're not addressed is that the, the primary goals of the Canadian regulations was to make a level playing field for both Canadian and U.S. manufacturers. But if these discrepancies or if there is misinterpretations between what the requirements are and they don't align with the EPA's TOSCA Title Six regulations, what you can, what the potential here is you would have different labels for the products. You would have uh, manufacturers not being able to perform or compete in markets within Canada unless they have facilities that are uh, on within the Canadian Providence for retaining the records for the annual reporting and also giving up some propri- proprietary information. Um, we just feel that these differences have the potential for leading to a lot of undue compliance cost and administration burdens for the manufacturers of the composite wood products, especially for our architectural wood door manufacturers on both sides of the border. Just thinking of of the differing label requirements, you know, we also look at from the standpoint of currently the labeling requirements within the U.S. convey to the consumers that these products are compliant and the fact that there's no similar language being required by the Canadian regulations, we don't understand what information or how consumers are going to know that they're not being put at any undue risk.
3: And just to close, what are WDMA's plans moving forward?
4: So at the current time, there's no specific timeline for finalizing these regulations, Um, but we do know that the next time that these regulations are proposed in Uh, the Canadian Gazette as a final regulation will be going into effect six months from that publication date. So at this point, what we plan on doing is just to continue to monitor the proposed regulations uh, participating to the best of our abilities to ensure that the final regulations that are proposed and published are aligned with the TSCA Title VI regulations so that there is no undue burdens on our uh, U.S. manufacturers or the Canadian manufacturers for that matter. Um, as we stated in our comments that were submitted, you know, we, we appreciate the efforts of the Canadian government trying to establish some sound regulations limiting formaldehyde emissions for composite wood products to not only protect the health of Canadians, but to also make that the regulations be consistent with the U.S. so that there is no barriers for manufacturers operating on both sides of the border, um, and we will continue to support those efforts as much as we can.
3: Well, Steve, thank you very much for taking the time to join us and talk about this very important issue going on in Canada. Uh, We really appreciate your time. And that does it for another episode of WDMA Open and Close. If you are listening to us through your favorite podcast platform, do us a favor and don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Thanks for listening and goodbye until the next episode of WDMA Open and Close.